God willing, we'll actually take on two chapters tonight. We'll see if that happens. We'll call it Crossing the Jordan. Go to the Lord with me in prayer, would you, right away? And I think we're just going to read through and develop it as we read it tonight. Beautiful, rich, meaningful text. Just pray with me, if you would, please. Lord, I thank you so much for what you're going to do tonight here. I come to you, Lord, knowing that you are our strength. You are our clarity. You are our goodness. And we rest, Lord, on your on your all might. And we lay ourselves before you tonight and pray that you would speak to us beautifully and profoundly. Lord, don't let us be distracted by the weeds of life, by the things, God, that the enemy would try to, to distract us tonight. You have so much to say. So I pray that there would be this sweet but intense intimacy tonight. And that you would not just burrow, but that you would barge into our hearts tonight. Profoundly ministering. Profoundly speaking to us. Profoundly revolutionizing us. Giving us clarity, Lord. And I just trust you in this. Lord, I know that There are times, Lord, where we can see the battle before us, and there are times where the battle kind of comes upon us, Lord, and we don't see it coming. But in all cases, you are sovereign. You are in control. And we never want to give the enemy credit when you are clearly in control and he's got enough press already. He's gotten way too much, actually. So tonight, Lord, keep our minds and our hearts captivated in your word tonight. And properly let every word be properly spent, every moment, every second be properly spent, and that you would speak fluent us, every one of us tonight, no matter where we're at, we would hear you tonight. We commit this to you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say tonight, as it would any, of course, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so, search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority for which you test all things to be true or false. We're now in the third chapter of Joshua. Joshua, for those of you who are new, have replaced, he's, has, he's replaced Moses who died on a mountain called Nebo and uh, saw the promised land but could not go in. Joshua is his replacement. Joshua has come in now and... He has taken the responsibility of doing what could not happen 38 years prior when the nation of Israel being moved out by supernatural miraculous means brought out of Egypt through God doing something no one's ever been able to do before that point and until now and has never done since. And that is to stop and parted the Red Sea in this case, uh, in Moses' case. And it wasn't just like there was... Uh, some weird earthquake in the water did some strange hula dance and sort of moved in two ways. They walked on dry ground. And that, that just, again, the, the majesty of that idea of them leaving their bondage, walking through the Red Sea without getting a drop upon them is a pretty radical thought. But then 38 years ago, they were brought to the same place. They were brought to... Uh, to this beautiful spot, Kadesh Barnea, and in that, they said, no, we we're not going to go and fight this battle. We won't. I know that that must be what God promised us, but we're not interested. And now, after the last 38 years, that generation has died, and all that remains of that generation are two people, one of them being this man, Joshua. So now, Joshua was there, and he wanted to go in 38 years ago. Now here he is looking, and he's finally getting the chance, but had he thought 38 years ago he would be the one leading them in, that's another story. So in the last chapter, two spies were sent, they came back, and this was their report. It says in the last verses of the chapter prior, and you see that with me. They said to Joshua, truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. 
all of Canaan, specifically there of Jericho, the sort of most fortified city in the center, that's what they came to spy out. They had said that they had already heard about how God had parted that Red Sea, and they had heard about how God took down the kings, giant kings, if you will, of Sihon and Og. Listen to that order, because this will become important. We've heard how God parted the sea and then took down the big kings. That's what they've heard. So they're freaked out. And imagine they're following, Israel's following a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. You've got to be able to see that from Jericho. And would that be a little weird for you, seeing a pillar of fire at night and leading the people of God to the border of Canaan? I'd get a little nervous, especially knowing the reputation. So this is what we read in chapter 3, verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove, or Shittim, if you have the old King Jimmy. Uh, that's just the, the Hebrew word for Acacia. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. One of the things we're going to see, by the way, and we won't see it as much in this chapter, but we'll see it in chapters, I believe, 6, 7, and 8 as well, is that Joshua's an early rising. He tends to get this to jump on the day, and when he does, he tends to seek the Lord. We'll talk about that at a latter day. Here, what we see, of course, is he's gotten up early, They've came down to the Jordan. Now that is moving roughly two million people. And of the two million people that are moved now, they are now right on the borders of this overflowing river. And this is going to become really important. Now understand in this chapter, the next two chapters, this one and the next, what we're going to find is the term the Lord in one manner or another used 20 times. I think that's rather important. As a matter of fact, the Lord your God will be six of them. The Lord of all the earth will be two more. And the term the ark will be used 17 times for what it's worth. And a quarter of the entire times that you read the Ark of the Covenant will be actually in these two chapters. That tells me something. So we started at the river. What we're going to know about this river, we've taken a three-day journey to this spot. What we're going to see here in a moment is it overflows its banks. Now that is really important because that gives me a reference. Jordan, at that particular spot that we're looking at, the good news is that geography doesn't tend to change too much. I mean, you can find Paris today as much as you could have a thousand years ago, because Paris didn't move. And in the same way, you can find this spot that they're seeking to cross over. And if we sort of look at the topography, what we see is, hear me on this, that the area that we're looking at, when it overflows its banks, the river in its width is a thousand meters. Now, let me give you a little reference, because all that is really is a number, but keep that number in mind, about a thousand meters. So let me put that into perspective. What's the tallest building that we know of in London? The Shard. Does anyone know how tall it is? It's 309 meters. So let's just take, just to say you took the Shard and you laid it down sideways. We're not talking about you're the Hulk and you knocked it down. But you just took it and you laid it down sideways, and then you took another shard and you put it on the other end of it to make it twice as long. And then you just took another shard and put it on the other side of that. Three shards is still not the entirety of a thousand meters. That gives you an idea how wide we're talking about here. That's quite a distance. It's a half a mile is what we're talking about. So, if keep in mind that, so when we're kind of looking, imagine you're staring and on the other side of three shards is the other side. That's Canaan. So when God tells you in a moment you're going to cross through the river, which one of you volunteers for that? When it's actually in the spring, we're talking about March, April here, when things aren't just like overflowing in regards to the size of it, but it's also rushing. This is whitewater rafting material is what we're talking about. So it's one thing, if you've ever been in a situation where there's just a lot of water, but when you see a lot of water rushing really fast, that's normally not a really good thing, unless it's the ocean and you've got a surfboard. Anyway, with that in mind, get an idea. Now, it was a thousand meters, so let me ask you roughly, how long or how wide is the river at this time? Yeah, that should have been a very easy question. Hopefully you're still you're there, you're there, right? Check, one, two, is this up? Okay. Now follow me on it. So it says then, verse 2. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place to go after it. And there you shall, there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in nature. I'm sorry, in measure. In 2,000 cubits in measure. Hmm. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. According to this measure, how much distance must you put between you and the ark of God? The ark of the covenant. 
A thousand cubits. Does anyone know how long a thousand cubits is? A cubit is a half a meter. So that should be easy math. How many meters then is 2,000 cubits? A thousand, 2,000 cubits is a thousand meters. So in other words, think of it this way. You are, that was really rough. Am I, we are, you guys are there, right? Just check it. We should have really served espresso before we started. Okay, follow me on this. The distance of the river that we're looking at, us three shards away and going, wow, that's quite a distance. That is the same distance now between us and the ark. And I get the idea here that God's kind of saying that somewhere between us and between us and the ark is the only distance. And I want to bridge that distance now. I want to get closer to God and there's this thing in between us. And then I get to the river and I'm like, this kind of looks really about the same distance. And there's the point. That God wants us to see, by the way, that he wants to bridge that gap, but he's going to need to do something to do so. Now, in this particular chapter, and specifically, and in the next as well, what we're going to see is specific addresses. And here's our first of them, by the way. Notice, by the way, in verse 3, it tells us, and actually verse 2, it says that the officers went through the camp and commanded the people. Do you see that in verses 2 and 3? So, what you have in the officers, those are your soldiers. And what the soldiers have, they have a very simple message, by the way, to say. And the message is, get up and let's get going. And by the way, can I say that as we're talking about soldiers here, people that are ready for the battle, we're going to be looking at what you're going to do is you want to, of course, if you're actually in the fight, in the fray, what you're going to want is more people in the fray as long as they're not getting in your way or they're not shooting at you. So, so imagine the idea here is that the soldiers that are out there doing the work, that they're out there fighting the battle, are going to turn it. And chances are you'll find that in church too. You'll find the guys that are soldiers and the girls that are soldiers are the ones that go, come on, let's get out there and let's get going now. But you're going to need to do it the important and the right way, which is we're going to need to follow the ark. Now, up to this point, now I want you to realize, between us and three shards away on the other side of the river, life is going to be very different. On this side, in the wilderness, we're following a cloud by day and a pillar by night. It's really evident the way that we're going to need to go by looking up. And I get the idea that that's how we start in the wilderness. We spend our whole time kind of looking at and saying, God, where are you? I want to connect with you. I know you're up there somewhere. I just want to talk to you. I just want to hear from you. Lead me. And that's how it starts. But somewhere down the line, God says, we're going to need to bring that down now into real life right in front of you. And you're going to need to follow me this way. And I want you to hear me. I want you to hear my word. I want you to follow me because I've got great victory in front of you. And you're going to need to, to keep your eyes on me. And I get the idea that the way this work starts with us, though we look up here, is that this is going to have to come down. Well, that's the whole story of Jesus, isn't it? God's so loving us and seeing us, crying out, saying, God, please save, please deliver. God, I'm nothing without you. Please deliver me. And all of a sudden, in that, God steps down and leads us forward. And that's what we see. The soldiers are like, are you guys ready? And imagine when you see the guys that are out on the field. Imagine the guys that are out there that are in India and watch their entire family hide in a station wagon when the militants came, poured gasoline over their entire station wagon and set them on fire so that the man, his wife, and his children were all roasted alive. And and the, the family that couldn't get at them because of the mob who are still serving in that community, still preaching Jesus in that community. And they come into the West world and they say who wants to go out and just go out onto the street here where someone might give you a cross look and that's about it who wants to go with me and we all kind of go well that would be cool but not really today could you imagine what that kind of soldier would see chances are he'd have the same message let's get up and let's get going let me remind you God's to fight the battle let's go follow him there's our point well then Joshua's going to jump in next and notice what it says And by the way, it does say in verse 4, you need to keep your distance because you've never gone this way before. For 17, well, really, for about 15 years or so, what we did is we actually led trips to Israel. And and we've done a couple since we've been here. Of course, we're looking at doing another one, uh, God willing, in January. And one of the fun things about it is watching the people because you kind of have to be in front. I mean, I'm I'm the one guy, truth be told, that kind of knows where he's going. But there's always going to be a handful of people, at least two, and oh bless them for this. That no matter how, I mean, and you try to walk at a pace because you realize and you try to pace yourself so that you're not so slow that the fastest person just goes mental, but you're not going so fast that the slowest person gets lost. So that's kind of a balance. And for me, who's a quick walker with my legs, it's easy to kind of 
outpace people. Daniel helps me with that because he actually watches things like traffic lights. Now, now as, I'm, as I'm walking, inevitably you're walking at a certain pace, and there are people who are just tired of walking that slow, but they have no clue where they're going. So what happens is as you're walking, they'll walk right past you. They'll be in conversation. And so usually what happens is you let them, and they get so far ahead, they'll get from about here to the door, and at the point, I'm terribly mischievous. And what I'll usually say is, all right, you guys, the ones who are still actually being right with me, I'm like, all right, you guys, and we duck out for a second. So we usually kind of duck out into a couple doorways or whatever, like out of a street somewhere, you peek around the corner, and you watch them, like, and then they kind of look back, and you watch them freak out because they're in Israel, and they're standing there by themselves on a street, and they have no clue where to go. So you wait for a moment, you let them panic, you watch them kind of perspire greatly and get into indigestion, and then you kind of step out, and usually it works. Uh, but inevitably, there's always a butterfly chaser in there somewhere. Usually, these days, it's with a phone and a camera, right? It's like, you know, you watch the person, and they've, just, they've got their selfie stick, and it's like three different, you know, they've got the short one and the long one that they kind of keep in their pocket. They have to walk like this, and you know, and they're like, oh, this could be great. And you just watch them, like, you know, and you know it because they actually brought three external hard drives to dump all of their picture, and you know, oh, we're in trouble. And, and you watch this, and it's like, oh, they're, you, like, you have to almost like, you have to put a collar on them like you do with, you know, like inmates, just to make sure you know where they're at. And the reason I say that is, is that I get the idea that God knows when you're dealing with two million people, what are the odds you've got a bunch of those two? And God's like, I need you to keep three shards distance so you don't get past me. I want you going, and I want you moving, but I don't want you ever to move ahead of me because you don't even know where the heck you're going. And you're going to have to follow me to the camp I choose. And what I've learned is the way that I normally do that is by filling in blanks. Have you ever done that? God gives you like a little bit of information, but you've decided that you need to give him the rest. Like it's like the Lord would say, Lucas, I want you to go east for a couple minutes. And Lucas goes, China. That's where I'm supposed to go. And he says, no, just a couple minutes east. And you're like, yeah, but I'm sure what he means is China because he said east. See how you filled that in? But do you guys do that too or is that just me? And I get the idea that what God's saying is, I need you to keep your eyes on me. Don't try to get ahead of me. Well, then Joshua's going to step in next. And so it says that in verse 5, and Joshua says to the people now, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. I love the fact that Joshua, which is the Hebrew name as you're aware of for Jesus, turns and he says, you know what? I want you to know you were on the verge of a miracle. It doesn't look like it right now. I mean, if I were the average Israelite at this moment, this is what I would notice. A loud, boisterous, long and wide river that looks impassable. And a giant battle on the other side that I didn't ask for. Where they look like giants and I look like grasshoppers in comparison. That's what I would say. And Joshua turns and he says, you have no idea you were on the verge of a miracle. And so you need to do something. You need to set yourself apart. That's what the word sanctify Kadash means. Now, when we think of holy or set apart like this, what we normally think is we set apart away from something. But it challenges you to look in Scripture and see how many times it says holy away from and how many times it says holy unto. Do you know what makes you holy? Do you know what sets you apart? You're holy unto the Lord. That's the point. Is that the Lord actually set you apart unto Him. And so when Joshua says, I want you to get ready, set yourselves apart, because you are, you're about to see a miracle, and I want you to realize who's doing it. So I want you to set apart unto the Lord. Because if you're clinging to the world when God starts doing miracles, you claim them for yourself, and that's a really bad place to be. Then the Lord, I'm sorry, verse 6, then Joshua speaks to the priests. He says, take up the Ark of the Covenant, Cross over before the people. So they took the Ark of the Covenant, as you can see. And they went before the people. In the first case, the officer said, get ready, get going. Joshua now says, set yourself apart, because we're on the verge of a miracle. And then Joshua says to the priest, it's time to lead in faith. The Lord says to Joshua in verse 7, This day I will begin to exalt him in the sight of all Israel. He's speaking to Joshua. That they may know... That as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. 
But you shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. And Joshua said, Now, which one of you wants to be the priest at that moment? So now understand here, the Lord's having this conversation with Joshua, and what he's saying is, hey, today I'm actually going to show them, I'm going to show them that I'm going to lift you up. But understand how God lifts somebody up. God doesn't lift them up so that you can think you're awesome, or so that other people will applaud you as awesome. If you realize that God calls you by name, you're already awesome. You can't get any more awesomer than God calling you by name. That's the problem here. Because we live in a world where we're constantly trying to get applause by people, from people with weak hands. And there's a God who actually would rather applaud us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. And he holds the entire universe in his hand. The same hand, by the way, where he holds us and says no one is able to snatch us out. Imagine when those hands start clapping, what that sounds like. The hand, by the way, that marked the universe. God went, shaka. And that was the universe. I love that. But one thing we learned in the book of Acts, man, and the same people who applaud you, we learned it with Jesus and Paul Sunday, the same people who applaud you may grab stones within a week if you're not careful. So be careful when you're trying to get applause. In this particular case, what God says is, now look, it's my time to lift you up. And this is why, because I want the people to realize, as I was with Moses, and he led them, now it's your turn, they need to know that, well, that I'm with you too. And it's important to note, when you watch somebody that seeks to lead people in Christ, the real question is, do you see Jesus upon that person or with that individual? Because if you don't, be really careful what you do with them. And you can watch people and they can be really fancy in what they say. They can be all full of the great mame coat, the whole bit and waving until people fall over. And they can do all kinds of crazy stuff. But do you see the character and nature of Jesus upon this individual? Because that's what I'm looking for. Because I know that a student will be like his teacher. And God says, look, you know, it's my job to lift you up, not yours. You never have to exalt yourself. But here's the problem. That's just not our nature. Something inside, there's this little chip inside Hugo, and inside Bruno, and inside Maureen, and inside Martha, and Dan, every one of us. And that chip inside of us walks into a society, whatever that culture or society is, and says, how do I excel? How am I cool in this group? And it's amazing, because some of us are a little bit attuned to that, more than others. But there are some that it's like, what happens is we kind of look in, it's like, okay, if everybody's really cool in this particular way, what do I have to do to be cool with them? And what happens is, imagine, here's the danger in churches. We could say, well, what makes me cool in this church is I get a tattoo, or what makes me cool in this particular church is I wear a tie, or what makes me really cool in this church is I sing in the choir, or what makes me really cool in this church is I've memorized a bunch of scriptures. And understand, wearing a tie and all this stuff, that's not the issue. But if the issue is to try to be liked, Exactly how many scriptures, how many tattoos, how many ties do you have to wear before you go, or how many times do you get to sing a solo before someone thinks you're awesome? And there's the danger. God says, you know, it's my job to lift you up. But if you don't find your value in me, you're really going to spend the rest of your life chasing it from people that are trying to do the same thing. So imagine if we could hear the inside. Two strangers meet, and they're like, Hi, by the way, I hope you think I'm awesome. He says, Hi, nice to meet you. I hope you think I'm awesome. Well, hi, how do I feel you out and read you to kind of figure out what to do to present to you so you think I'm awesome? And he's doing the same thing. Imagine how weird that is if we could see all of that play out. But imagine the, the shoes that Joshua has to fill because he's following Moses' footsteps, right? This was the guy that parted the Red Sea. And this is the guy that called plagues down. This was to let my people go with his brother. And I have this really awesome stuff with Moses. And imagine how intimidated you would be to be Joshua. And God's like, you know what? It's my turn to do it with you now. I think there's a point that we get kind of excited. It's kind of like, well, are we going to do plagues now? Or what's, what's the deal? He goes, because you know what? I want people to know. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm not going to know that I'm with you. Because I want them to feel comfortable to know that you're really hot for me. And they should follow that. And I love that about Joshua. So listen to what it says. He says, so you're, you're going to need to tell the priests that giant three-shard wide beyond river, you're going to have to tell them they have to stand in the middle of it. Which one of you wants to tell the priests that? Do you really think that there are like four macho priests that can't wait to stand in the middle of that river? So hear me on this. Joshua has to tell them this. Joshua says in verse 9, notice, Joshua says to the children of Israel, Come here, 
Hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua says, By this you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, we'll take for yourselves twelve men. Interesting, in this small speech, you're not going to find out any, anything to do with them. So imagine you pick your twelve men. Read the rest of it. What do you do with them? It says, Now therefore, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. And it will come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest on the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, and the waters shall come down from upstream, and they shall stand up, that come down shall stand up as a heap. Are you buying it? So Joshua's like, okay, so listen everyone, here's the way it works. Pick 12 guys, one from each tribe. I'll tell you later what that's for. And I get the idea that they're like, okay, that's me, what? And Joshua's not telling us yet. He goes, but I'm going to tell you what you can happen. See the ark? You guys see the ark now? This is what's going to happen. Those guys that are carrying the ark are going to go into that water. And I already know Don't worry, don't worry. They're going to walk into the water, and as they walk into the water, it's going to stop. It's going to stop, and it's going to pile up somewhere up here, somewhere, somewhere upstream, somewhere north of us. It's going to pile up. He hasn't told us where. I don't even know if Joshua knows where yet. But it's like, so here's the deal. The priests have to do something crazy. They have to exercise faith. Because God said this was going to happen. And you can say that is so unscientific. And God's like, yeah, so? What part of a miracle is scientific? If you could explain it, how is it a miracle anymore? And God wants to do stuff that you can't explain so that what happens ultimately is the only answer you have is, God, how did that happen? Uh, God? And then it's like, it sounds so dumb, but it's so perfect. So he's like, okay, here's the deal. A couple of these guys are going to have to carry this ark. By the way, the whole idea, this is supposed to be the symbol of the presence of God. And it's going to walk through our camp. It's going to walk in front of us. And the good news is they're going to be three shards in front of you anyways. And so they have to get into the river. And as they get into the river, they're going to, as soon as they step in, which one of you wants to take that first step with me? As soon as they step in, the water's going to stop. And whoop, it's going to get up there somewhere. And, and God's going to dam it up. And you're like, well, my first thought is, thank you, Lord, I'm not a priest. This moment. But every one of us is crossing over. So Joshua's like, are you guys ready? Are you guys ready for this? So, I mean, imagine where we're at in all of this. We're watching this, and all we're hearing is, ah! We're hearing the water rush and bubble and bond us this whole time. And we're hearing all of this as if it's kind of going, and I'm watching this going, oh man. But the priests, of all people, the ones who are carrying the presence of God, and it's like, he's like, look at it. If you've got to carry the presence of God, you're going to be a priest. There's the point. So let's get moving forward now. And the priests are going to have to lead. Let those that know the presence of God, not in some sort of bubbly, shaky, and let's look for clucking feathers, but rather for those who just know that they're in the will of God. And, oh God, I just want you to have all of me. And I want your presence to just consume me. And these are the people that are going, all right, now, those are the people you want to follow because they're the only ones that have the crazy faith that it's going to take to step in that water. So, are you ready? Verse 14. So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And those that bore the Ark came to the Jordan. Yeah, are you ready? Someone's got to step in. And the feet of the priests. Now, would you, would you be glad to be the guy on the back side of the Ark? Which one of us is crazy enough to be the front carrier of the ark at this moment? I think I would love to. Because I kind of figure, even if I fail, I die and I stand before God and acted in crazy faith. And I'm like, I want to see that. And here's the fun part, is that someone, more than anyone, is going to watch water move from away from their feet as they step out. Could you imagine that? It's like, we want to live the life of a miracle, but we just don't want to take the step that it takes to do that. 
We'd rather, be, we'd rather wait for somebody else to step in it. And then it's still a miracle, but it's just not as much of one. To walk in that dry ground, hey, it's a miracle. But is it as much of a miracle as it is the one where you step down? I mean, think of when Jesus turns water to wine. Who knew it? It was the servants who were crazy enough to do more than just fill water pots with water. It was they had to go and take it to the, to the bridegroom's friend, to the head of the wedding. To take it to the friend of the bridegroom and go, here, here's some nasty water that we used in the sink that we used to wash all of this stuff. It's like, here's some bathtub water, but don't worry, Jesus promises it'll be something else. Which one of you has that crazy faith? Imagine, imagine when the guy takes a sip of it and goes, this tastes like bath salt at best. But if Jesus says it, do you trust him and do what he says? Because he does say crazy stuff. Because he wants you to be able to tell everyone about this amazing God of miracles. But for that to happen, you've got to be willing to obey him when things are crazy. So it was, verse 14, when the people set out to camp across the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and those, as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, that the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows its banks during the time, the whole time of harvest. And he gives us this very important information. That the waters which came down from upstream stood still, rose in a heap very far away at where? Oh, go ahead, say it loud. You got it. What is it? Adam, that's where it stopped. Did you notice that? He gives us a place where the water stops. At a city that is beside what? Zevetan. Can you say Zevetan? Oh, look at you guys. I'll speak in Hebrew. Okay. Zevetan. Okay. Adam. Zevetan. So the waters that went down from the sea of Rava. Say Rava. Now some of you, I expect that little thing going on The salt sea failed. And they were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Yericho. Say, Yericho. Okay, big deal, right? Why does God give us these places? Do you imagine, it's like, I just, if I just get to the promised land, what I really want to do is get to a place called Adam. Wouldn't that be cool? And I'd say, oh, this was where the water stopped. I bet there's a postcard. And maybe a shirt, probably, to be honest. And to be honest, there's probably somebody selling water that they said was actually piled up back then as well. You could probably get it, you know, in a, you know, in a, like an Evian bottle, which you're aware of is naive backwards. Anyways, so follow me on this. Okay, so here's the idea. Somewhere down the line, the priest has to step into the water, and as they step into the water, the water stops. And as the water stops, it piles up at what city? I don't, okay, at what city? Come on, yeah, see, some of you, you, you're right, but say it with some conviction. What city? Yeah, there we go. Okay, and it was beside another city. And what was the city it was beside? Zabaton. Thank you. Right. So, now, what is the name of the river? That should be, actually, that should be a weird one. Jordan. Yeah, good like Beautiful. Jordan. Jordan. Here's the weirdest part. Why in the world is it called Jordan at this point? The reason it's called Yordan is from when the twelve tribes, one of the tribes' names is Dan, which means judgment. Yay, but Daniel means judgment of God. That's so much more comfy. Anyway, so, so okay, the reason is when the tribes, when they actually went up taking the land, which they haven't yet, but when they went up taking the land, they allot the land to all of the tribes. And one of the tribes, old Danny, has a problem with his land. He's like, I don't like it. I'll get my own land. So they go to the farthest point north and conquer a group of people that are just basically sitting there. It's like a group of sort of vegetarians with Birkenstocks on. They're very, very peaceful people. Everyone's sort of nice. And everything's really kind of sweet, drinking their kale smoothies. And they kind of go, and they kill them all. And then Dan takes the territory, but they're the farthest north. Your means from or flows from, or comes from. What does Dan mean again? Judgment. So what does Yordan mean? From judgment, or the flow from judgment. Okay, you with me so far? One thing we already know, Joshua. Joshua is the Hebrew name for 
Jesus. That was the simple one. Yehoshua, God is salvation. Jesus, God is salvation. That's Greek. Okay, now, follow me on this. Now, here we are. This guy whose name is Jesus, only in the Hebrew, stops this Jordan at a town. What was the name of the town? What was the name of the town? Adam. Beside the town called Zeratan. Adam means a man. Or red. It all depends on where you put your vowel points. And Zeratan means their distress. whoop de do. Well, yeah. Because what that means is a guy that's named Jesus stops the flow of judgment. Adam, man, beside their distress. So that we could cross over where God has ordained for us. Do you get it? God could have stopped it anywhere. He could have stopped it up. And, and here's the cool part. It's not even called Dan yet. So this isn't even called Jordan yet. It's a river. Big, bubbly river. But God's going to move us forward to what it's going to be named because the words are that important. This Jesus character, Joshua, stops the flow from judgment at a man beside their distress. And I wonder what that would be like for me to see. And by the way, it flows into the Dead Sea. God stopped the flow into the Dead Sea at a man. And it was interesting because it flowed from judgment into death. That makes sense, doesn't it? And he stopped it at a man beside their distress. Oh, I love that. Oh, there was one other thing that he gives us in that, for what it's worth. He also tells us, by the way, that it went down into the sea of the... And what do they call the salt sea here? Agrava. Now, how many times have you seen Agrava for salt sea? It's usually called the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. What does Agrava mean? It means my promise. So I love the fact that God stopped in his petite, did all of this in accordance with... He stopped right before his promise. So on one side of it is the promise... On the other side is the flow from judgment that's called off. And by the way, that promise is not the kind of promise, by the way, where it's like, I hope I'll do this. This is the kind of thing where you're surety. In other words, somebody needs to take a loan. Lucas needs to take a loan for something. He's going to buy a new Hummer. And he wants to buy a Hummer because he wants to have the only vehicle that takes up all of the road here. And so he wants something like that. So basically it's him and the bus is out there. You know? and, and with that, he, can't, he doesn't have enough money. And he goes to get the loan. And they look and they kind of size him up. What kind of job you have? You're going to need a cosigner. That cosigner is a promise or a surety. And so what happens is he somehow sort of sweet talks David Bochy and says, bro, you're working with the queen. Things are good. How about you help me? Back me up here a little bit, buddy. And so what happens is Bochy becomes his promise. He becomes his surety. And that's the word, Rabbah. And I love that because that's what Jesus was for me. The debt that I owed for my sin, Jesus stepped in and paid for. And how did he do it? He stopped the flow of judgment out of man beside their distress so that I can cross over where he needs me and where he wants me. And we've been preparing for this, and I get the idea, like, this is why you need to set yourself apart. Because, understand, for us, we don't get that because we don't speak Hebrew traditionally. So even like when you name things, but this is such a great place for that. Like, this is England where we name things English titles. Like some of the places like Little Snoring. What image does that paint in your head of the title town Little Snoring is? How about Mud Shoot? Or Spittlefields? Spittlefield? A field of spit? I kind of get the idea somebody wanted to live alone. Right? They put their place in and we call this Spittlefields. So now we don't live there. Again. But I kind of look and I think, oh my goodness. Really? Spittlefields. Much you Awesome. But we can say that. I mean, we, we get so used to it, we don't think about it. But imagine if we, you know, someone said, well, they built a mud house out by mud shoes. We go, well, duh. But you wouldn't get that if you spoke Japanese. You know, they'd say, in Japanese, they built a, and you know how that is. You're speaking another language, but then proper names go, it's like, oh, 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 you know, like, that's how you get but we know that much means a shoot of mud. And the reason I say that is, is to the Hebrew mind, these are Hebrew words. 
So when Adam, when it stopped at Adam beside Zeratan, and there's the, the Sirzaba, and the Yordan, these are Hebrew terms. We wouldn't know what those terms meant. And he takes us over. And now everything's very, very different. Because now I have to look and go, whoa. What do we do when we get to the other side? It's kind of like a wedding. You spend so much time focusing on things like the design of the doily that you actually wake up at the end of a wedding and go, oh my goodness, we're married now. What in the heck do we do with our lives? We spend all our time on this event. Imagine what that would be like. For 40 years, we've been preparing to cross this river. If we were Joshua or Caleb, we finally crossed the river. Imagine you're like, oh, man, I wanted to be here for so long. Verse 17. The priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. All Israel crossed over on dry ground until the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. One side note here. Adam is, if you will, 15 to 20 miles north of us uh, where we're crossing here. And I think that's interesting. That means, I mean, has anyone ever been to a dam before? You've seen something and it's roughly 40, 50 stories high. You kind of walk on the bridge and you just know there's a giant body of water on one side. There's really not on the other side. Imagine that without the wall. And you're walking. I mean, do you think you can see something as tall as the shard standing up 30 miles or 15 miles, 10 miles away? I think you can see a giant body of water and think, oh my goodness, Lord, hold that up until I get past. And grandma. And... Uncle, she, I, and whatever. Come on, Grandma, let's get moving, let's get moving. And we'll be here. And it says the people hurried through. Which one of you wouldn't have hurried through? You know? And so we all cross over to the other side on this. And all of a sudden, there we are. And I mean, ultimately, the good news is the priests don't have to die in the river. But my thought is, if you're on a wall that's as tall as this ceiling and taller. I remind you, for those of you who are here, as we talk, started painting the picture of Jericho. Do you really think a couple miles away you'd be able to see that happen? Which one of you doesn't freak out if you're in Jericho? Remember, this is what Rahab the harlot said. We've heard the stories of how this guy, Moses, how your God parted the Red Sea and then killed the giants on the other side. And now they just parted the Jordan. I would put two to two together and think the next thing is they're going to start killing the kings. Like ours. Oh boy. And they were already freaked out. You part the, red, you part the Jordan at this point, it's got people really nervous. You know, sometimes the people who get most antagonistic and get in your face the most, do you realize sometimes those are the people who are actually the most, though they say they don't believe, they're actually the most afraid that you actually believe what you believe. And they're afraid what would happen if what you actually believe is true. And sometimes they try to look like bullies to you, but really all they're really trying to do is to try to find any weakness at all because when you cling to Christ, you're so unbelievably strong. People don't even know how to break you. And they want to because if they figure if they can break you, then this God must not be real. And man, they'll hit anywhere they can. And when you don't go down, the only conclusion left is this God must be real. You're like, well, why would God allow that? Because he wants them to know that he's real. It isn't because he wants to punish you. He just loves them too. So now we've gone to the other side. And at this point, I would imagine there's a whole lot of people changing drawers in Jericho. So walk through this. The next chapter is a bit quicker, so follow this with me. Chapter 4, verse 1. It came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan... That the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourself twelve men. Remember how he called twelve men, but they didn't know what in the world they were doing? Well, God gives you something to do with them now. Take yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe. Command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. And you shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. 
Okay, there you go. Find a guy from each tribe, but don't find a little weakie. Find someone big and strong. So, because what we're going to need is we want you to go and find a big rock, throw it on your shoulder, and get, grab it from the middle of the river. I, would you rather carry the stone, or would you rather carry the ark? Because both are important here. And for some people, you are the kind of their ark carriers, and you're going to be at the front, and you're going to watch the water part. For some of you, you're going to be stone carriers, and what's going to happen is you're going to build a monument to help people ask questions. So Joshua tells him. Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take, this is what he's speaking to, take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of tribes of the children of Israel. And this will be a sign among you when your children ask you in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them by the, that the waters of the Jordan, that they were cut off from before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be a memorial to the children of Israel forever. Now, flip really quick for just a moment to verse 21, so you see who would be asking you that. In verse 21, he says, he spoke to the children of Israel once they grabbed the stones, saying, when your children ask who, according to verse 21, their fathers. Do you see that? When they ask their fathers in time to come, what do these stones mean? Well, dads, this is what you're going to say. Here's the point. Listen, God wants to help dads, and He knows that they're dumb. And He knows that they're not naturally inclined to want to teach their kids. And so God's going to say, I'm going to make it easy for you here. But here's the deal. I want you to take one guy from each tribe, so that you're not saying, okay, well, Naphtali, you guys are the stone-carrying tribe. One from each tribe. I want you guys to grab the stones, put them on your shoulders, and you're going to put them in a heap. Now, I don't know about you, but if you go through Israel, I've been there, you know, enough times that I look and I go, oh, look, a pile of stones. I don't think that's weird. That's kind of like, you know, all being on a train heading north out of London, and you're like, oh wow, a field of flowers. There's a lot of those. And there's a lot of piles of stones. So I don't know how they pile them, but they pile them in such a weird way that the kids are going to go, oh, Dad, what's that? Kind of like stone hinges, only for God. And, and, and in that, the idea that there's something weird enough so that they have to ask a question because they know dads are not going to start it. It isn't like dads are going to go, son, you know what those stones are. Now maybe there's a few of us out there. But the majority of the dads are going to be probably there actually pretending like they're doing something important while they're playing a game on their phone. The kids are going to go, dad, dad, what's that? He goes, look, it, this is an opportunity to make this a testimony for the rest of his life. Now let me ask you something. In your life, what is that? What are your pile of stones? By the way, there will be at least seven or eight of those, actually ten different times where there will be a pile of stones of some sort as a testimony in this book. And this is our first of them. What are your pile of stones? For me, that's this wrapped around my ankle. For this, it's the thing I wear around my neck. When people ask, what in the world is that? I say, I'm so glad you asked. You better get comfortable. I've got something to tell you. I want something so that people ask, so I can tell them how God did something amazing in my life. Now listen, He got you out of Egypt, out of bondage by a miracle. He's going to get you in where He wants you by one too. You know when Paul speaks to the Galatians, he's a, he's a bit perplexed, because he says, you who've begun in the Spirit, are you trying to be perfected in the flesh? He's like, God did a miracle to save you. And somehow you're like, don't worry, God, I'll handle it from this point on. Really? You couldn't get out of the wilderness just as much as you couldn't get into the wilderness without God's help. And God got you out of Egypt by a miracle. He parted the Red Sea. So that no, there isn't anybody that you think, oh, that guy's the water parter. There's the windbender, and then there's the water parter. You know, it's like, look at God had to do this, and you didn't give Moses. As much as you want to try to do that when you watch the movie, truth be told, you know God had to do this. And it's like, God got you out of bondage, and he's the one who had to open up everything to get you out. And then God's going to get you into his perfect well, and he's the one who's going to have to do that too. So when that happens, God says, look at this is what you need to do. Set up something. You know what's amazing? I bet you have monuments for really rough moments in your life. Places, songs, maybe 
whatever momentums, those could be tattoos on your body in one way or another. They could be things that you keep in your room. They could be things that you keep with you at all times. But I bet you could probably tell me about monuments and moments where your heart was broken. But why don't we have mementos then for those moments where God did something so amazing that it's a testimony to other people? My old best friend, we ran a dojo together. I chased after a girl named Dolores and loved her desperately. She was Filipino, he was not, and the Filipino family is not interested in letting a little scrawny white boy go after their daughter. Three years he fought every brother, and it was rough because, I mean, this guy ran a dojo with me. He had no problem taking you down. But the problem is he couldn't permanently hurt the brothers because he still had to become their friends on the other side. It's weird. It's a weird dynamic, right? That's weird. So we're all aware of that. But I remember after three years, man, Randy really, really went after her. And he got her. I mean, this guy was determined. And Randy was about as mild as Daniel. Think of a guy like Daniel, but shorter. Real mild. And the night before... Randy was supposed to be married. I was actually at university. I was getting ready to head down, but they were going to go home with a bunch of the boys. Randy went on a road called High Road. It's a road where everything's really, really windy and there's some drop-off, very steep drops, very much like the 41. And he had been drinking. And that wasn't like Randy to do. Randy was kind of one of those bodies of temple things before I knew Jesus. He was still like that. And he drove off the road so hard that the car wrapped around a tree and didn't even come down. Randy was taken, he was actually helicoptered into the hospital, or to the hospital. His entire, every bone in his face was broken. He looked like a giant tomato. And I remember when he pulled the plug. I remember when, when everything went straight. All the machines still. But I don't want to carry that with me for the rest of my life. I don't want to carry momentum. I mean, that's a very special, heavy moment. I mean, obviously, I've seen my, my, my brother has died from an overdose. My mother died from cancer. And I'm not trying to assume pity. The point is, if, if we were going to take really, really heavy moments and build mementos, I wouldn't have any room in my room for my bed. But shame on me. Because I don't have enough of them for the moments where God did something amazing. And I can easily forget those. I mean, and there are moments where God did things so ridiculously profound that, to be honest, that when I, when I do think about it, I giggle still. Healing people of everything from cancer to gangrene in front of me. Why don't I do, why don't I have something for that? Why don't I have a song for that like I could for something else? God's a... We're so prone to grab a hold of those, those moments that impacted us so negatively. And it seems like those last so much longer than those moments of glory where God did something, to be honest, where we, for the rest of our life, would be changed because of it. God says, get the stones out of the river. When you cross over, remember that? No, if I were the one, remember, what condition, when people went from one side of the river to the other, how did they get across? They walked, but how did they walk? In a hurry. What that tells you is that they were fearful that somewhere down the line that water was going to stop being held up in Adam. So which one of you wants to reach down and grab a rock? I mean, would you just grab a little one? So you can get across quick? Well, I don't think that's going to make quite a memorial, will it? But I want you to grab something big enough that you've got to put it on your shoulder, walk the length of three shards, get it on the other side when we get to the, to the place we're going to call Gilgal. And then I want you to set these things up so that when people say, what in the heck is that? You know what it would look like? A big stack. And I think what's amazing is that that stack, if I were there at that moment, I would think God stacked the water kind of like that. And it says it's there to this day. Why is that important? Because a big pile of rocks tend to stay a big pile of rocks for a really long time. They don't turn into other things. Why is that important? Because I want you to fast forward 3,000 years. Well, actually, I should say, let's go have that. 1,400 years, because this is where we're at. 1,400 years later, 
there is a guy at the same place because the name gets a change. The name of the place becomes the house of the fords or the rushing water. That would make sense, wouldn't it? The word for house is Beth or Bit, like house of bread, Bethlehem. The word for fords is Barha. So the place becomes called Beth Barha. Now that may not sound familiar to you. But in the Gospel of John and in Matthew, it tells us that there was a guy at Bethabara. He was kind of a crazy guy. He ate bugs and honey. And people were coming and being baptized there. And I think it's interesting because this guy says, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, don't you think for a second that you could say, Well, we've got Abraham as our father, because God could take these stones and make children of Abraham out of them. And I wonder, I just wonder if there was a big pile of stones there from 1,500 years ago, 1,400 years ago that were stacked up because guys grabbed them and took them out of the river because it's the same place. Well, let's close this up. So at least seven different times, let me make it clear, that we'll find stone testimonies and two of them will be here. So look at, by the way, so it says in verse 8, The children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, took up the twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over to them, with them, to the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. And then it says, it says, Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests, who bore the Ark of the Covenant, stood, and they're there to this day. Now, someday we're going to find this. In other words, somebody, 12 other guys had to go, or maybe the same 12, had to go and grab a rock that was already on the other side of the Jordan and carry it back into the Jordan and stack them up there. Someday, I have a feeling we're going to go check it out, 12 rocks stacked upon each other, big rocks stacked upon each other. Oh yeah, that happens right here in Joshua 4.9. So that's our second thing, and maybe this is so fish, you're deep sea diving there, you can see it. Last thing. Notice it says that and they are there to this day. So the priests who bore the ark in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people. According to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, the people hurried and crossed over. And it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over, that the ark of the Lord, the people crossed over in the presence of the, I'm sorry, in the, presence of the people, then the men of Reuben, and the men of Reuben, the men of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, crossed over armed before children of Israel, as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 of them prepared for war, crossed over before the Lord for battle in the plains of Jericho. There is a problem here. We know this, by the way, from those of you who are familiar with when we've gone through the Torah, that in Numbers chapters 32 and 34, two and a half tribes looked at the other side of the Jordan and said, this is good enough. Do you guys remember that? And Moses called their bluff and said, okay, I'll make a deal. You go and fight with us, you can come back and have it. I want all of your able-bodied men, all of your men, to come and fight with us. Well, there's the problem. Because actually in Numbers chapter 26, it counted the men. And the men, by the way, in Numbers chapter 26, listen, 136,930 men were there able to fight. How many of them showed up for battle here? You tell me. Forty thousand. May sound like a lot of guys, but not compared to one hundred thirty-six thousand nine hundred thirty. As a matter of fact, it's less than a third. It's about twenty-eight, twenty-nine percent. This is what happens when you start to compromise. Well, on that day, the Lord did exalt Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they feared him as they feared Moses all the days of his life. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come out of the Jordan. Aren't you glad? Sorry, you guys, come back on now. Joshua therefore commanded the priests, saying, Come out of the Jordan. And it came to pass when the priests who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet touched the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all of its banks as before, and went just like it was before him. Which, by the way, would be a great deterrent to try to go back now. Now the people came up from the Jordan, 
on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal, on the east border of Jericho. And the twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, they set up in Gilgal. He spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over the Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters on the Jordan, the Jordan before you, until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we crossed over. That all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, they know that it's mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. What God did in the end of this, He said, you know why I did it this way? It wasn't just for you, but that the whole world would know how strong I am. That they would call out to me. See, God didn't just want to, I mean, God could have pronounced, God could have just killed everyone in Egypt and they could have left in one moment. But instead he performed ten plagues, each one of them systematically destroying all of the gods that people worshipped in Egypt so the Egyptians would know the only God worth worshipping is the one that the Israelis follow. And now, God's going to do the same thing there. Everybody's going to know that He is the only one. He's the one to follow. And now we've gotten to the other side. And I wonder how long before it sets in. No more manna. No more pillar. No more miracle water. We will move from the back, the wilderness of death, to the life in Canaan. And this will happen in a place called Gilgal, which is the place of consecration. I think, man, am I really willing to move forward? Because if I don't move forward, the only thing I'm going to be familiar with is the wilderness. And why would I want my past to define me? Why would I want where I came from to be where I get my identity from? But we can do that. Well, you know, I came from America, or I'm this race, or I've done this thing, or I was excelled in these areas, or I was weak in these areas. Why get your identity from that? Because see, that's what will separate us. Because we actually don't all have the same background. We don't have the same hair color. We don't have the same hair. Some of you have some, some of you don't. But what we do have in common, if we accept the gift of Jesus Christ, is the same future. And if we focus on what's behind us, we will always be divided. But if we focus on what's ahead of us, we'll always be united. And the only difference is where you're looking. And we can say, well, we'll put the Italian Christians over here where they can be loud, and the Greek Italians over there, or Greek Christians over there so they can be loud. And, you know, or we'll put, you know, the, the, the really traditional British ones over here where they can be quiet or whatever. And then in the end of it all, what are you doing? You're identifying people by what's behind us instead of what's in front of us. Let's get together. Let's just love Jesus. So let me wrap this up. The soldiers say, let's move forward. Don't be identified by what's behind you. Let's move forward. And then Joshua says, set yourself apart. Because man, I'm going to do something so amazing. You won't be, you'll be rubbing your eyes for the rest of your life. But I want you, at the end of this, to do something about it. I want you to make sure there's something you can look back at and say, check that out. Not just to remind you, but to teach your children. It's like, you know, you don't even have to tell them the depth of the captivity you were in. What you need to show is who parted the Red Sea to get you out and who parted the Jordan to get you into where you need to be. So let me ask you this as we pray. My God parted the heavens and came down because we were guilty before him and that needed to be punished. And Jesus, in his love for us, died on the cross so we could pay for your sins and life. He paid your bill. So why would you want him? Why would you want to pay the bill that God already paid? And when he died on the cross, it was properly punished. Paid in full, ten for less time. And then when he rose again on the third day, just as God promised, he offers you a brand new life. The cross got, in other words, what the cross says is you can get out of Egypt. The resurrection says you can get into Canaan. And for both of those, a miracle had to happen. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? Confessing Him as your Savior and as your Lord. To lead you into this new life where everything is so brilliant and beautiful that all you can say is, wow, this is so different from anything I've ever known. And that's exactly, actually what he says. He says, you've never passed this way before. You don't know this place. You don't know what abundant life is. You don't know about unquenchable joy. You don't know about unstealable peace. 
that surpasses your understanding, because that only comes following Christ. If you've not accepted that gift, I want to give you the chance to, and if you have, my challenge with you today is let's get up and get going now. Let's follow where He leads us. And to let our life be identified, if there are monuments at all, let them be the monuments of God's power and what He's done in our life, that we could use those to tell others that what really defines us is how God's worked in our lives. Pray with me, you too. Lord, I thank you so much for the gift of this time. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you cause us to cross, how you stopped the flow of judgment with yourself, with the man, Jesus, and how he died on that cross at our own distress, beside our own distress. And how when you stopped the flow of judgment, you became our promise, our surety, our payment. And as you became our payment, you stopped the flow into death, into the dead, so that we could cross over into abundant life. But I recognize with all of that, it still took an act of faith. Even if we were the two millionth person to cross over, we still knew that the water had been abated for a period of time, and we still had the exercise of faith to walk through. And in the same way, I pray for every one of us here today that we would have the faith to know, Lord, that if we say yes to you tonight, Jesus, that you would transform our lives. But for that to happen, we've got to trust. So if there be anyone tonight who maybe you're not sure you've ever said yes to Jesus, or maybe you're sure you haven't, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree with this prayer, and just say amen at me. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those be my words now. Let that be my prayer. And here's the prayer. God, I am a sinner. Like every human being, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty before you. But you so loved me that you paid my price by sending your only begotten Son, Jesus. He came down and paid my price on the cross so that all my sin could be punished without me, the sinner, having to be punished for him. And when he died there, my bill was paid. And on the third day, just like you promised, he rose again. So I say yes. I say yes to that gift. Lead me out of my own darkness and bondage. But I, in saying yes, that I could leave my Egypt. And for that to happen, you have to create a miracle to get me out, and you did that by dying on the cross. But also lead me into that place that has been promised, this place of abundant life, of overflowing joy, unquenchable joy, unstealable joy, peace beyond my understanding. Well, for that, you need to be my Lord, so I say yes to you as my Lord to lead me down in this new life as I seek to follow you. I'm yours. In Jesus, in your name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. So God, I just pray for anyone knowledge that yes to you tonight, that you would submit that in their hearts and develop within us now a passionate love for you. Thank you for what you've done tonight. Now be this Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.